0: Uh, Have been working our way uh, slowly but surely through some of the counterfeits to genuine Christianity. Uh, Things, frankly, that will keep people from uh, landing safe on Canaan's side in the promised land. Uh, So, we are intent uh, as Christians to uh, expose where people um, do not believe the gospel, don't trust the truth, and we want them to see. Uh, their error that they might uh, repent and then turn to Christ truly. Um, we've been talking about uh, the the different isms and schisms and things like that in our culture that we want to become aware of and sort of apply a presuppositional apologetic to uh, the different uh, errors that are out there. And we we know that there are cults that we... Uh, need to deal with and we will deal with in due time but as problematic as the cults are they have nowhere near the effect in undermining biblical christianity as what we're calling sub-christian christianity josh talked about that this morning how he said it's not sub-christian and and we're like looking down on them as lesser christians when we say sub-christian we're talking about not christian at all uh, it, it parallels or it comes very close to Christianity, claims the name of Christ is actually the pervasive beliefs in some churches, uh, but it's not true Christianity. It's really, a, I think, a clever scheme of the enemy to spin off a number of cults that counterfeit Christianity like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and all that. And many cr- evangelicals tend to think that the cult movements pose the real threat, the real uh, danger, all the while they're blinded to the fact that they themselves um, know people who have embraced really a sub-Christian form of Christianity or a sub-Christian gospel—a gospel that, frankly, won't save. We have uh, learned from church history and uh, watched over the centuries the drift of the Roman Catholic Church, the which um, has taught us that the closer the counterfeit, uh, the more dangerous it is; the more blinding it is. Um, the counterfeit that the roman catholic church morphed into over the centuries obviously it didn't start early on in, in its catholic small c communion its universal communion it didn't start uh in error necessarily it had elements and of error and seeds of its demise uh sown into the fabric but but it morphed into it and today i think it's It's not a monolithic religion like Roman Catholicism that we're dealing with uh but the error is just as real, the threat is just as real. it's rivaled today by I think a less defined, a less structured um and therefore harder to confront counterfeit within evangelicalism itself and I think that within evangelicalism, the errors have splintered and multiplied and proliferated to such a degree that we just keep coming up with all these different isms. Um, so sub Christianity, sub Christian Christianity, I think is a far greater threat because it's so much closer to the truth, and and many people are deceived by these sub Christian gospels. By uh, closer examination. I think that we, as we, the closer we come to the truth of Scripture, the more studied we are, the more learned we are in in doctrine in theology, and theology, and just what the Scripture says. Just reading it for ourselves and reading it afresh, we do grow in discernment, and we do, are able to spot the fake. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with, in, in some of these uh, uh, sessions that we're dealing with on on in apologetics and evangelism right now. We've talked so far about antinomianism and moralism, and those are two opposite uh, but very prevalent errors that undermine uh, the gospel, antinomianism on the one hand, moralism on the other. I have a a friend, a pastor friend, his family, they were taking up the back row uh, with uh, their big family. I kind of whispered to him just as I came in a little bit uh, just before church started, and I said, "This is the Mormon outreach row, so you're welcome to take the row for your whole clan." Uh, now there, but he's a pastor up in uh, Washington State, and the uh, this antinomian error. Uh, we mentioned the name Tuliyanchevijan, who is a fallen pastor, but he's back in ministry, uh, pastoring again. But uh, we mentioned his name number of churches up in their area in uh, north of Seattle there, um, fell prey to that same error. And even with the fall of Tully and Chavidgin, they're still at it, still going strong in the same kind of error. It's, it's, um, it's very hard to uproot once some of these things take uh, take deep root. Last time we talked about Christian liberalism. It's the tendency to to, to throw off restraint and old traditions uh, to chart a new, a different, exciting course. Uh, Dr. James Boyce warned uh, liberalism creeps into the church when we start listening to the world's wisdom. Uh, Worldly mindedness takes over. We allow the world to set the agenda for the church rather than the Bible, rather than Christ setting the agenda for the church. Uh, Then we use the world's methods to perform and and, uh, accomplish the world's agenda and all that's informed by worldly wisdom and so that's one danger is liberalism and we always have to be on our guard against that we also talked last time about christian minimalism and this is the error of whittling christianity down to its lowest common denominator Uh, many christians i think felt encouraged to do this when they looked at the apparent successes of things like the billy graham crusades and And other youth events and all those events and crusades and things like that uh, packaged the gospel, boiling it down to its lowest common denominator so it could be really simple. It's the cookies on the bottom shelf mentality that says, let's not make it too complicated for people. Um, Billy Graham crusades in particular were broad in embracing all kinds of denominations, even Roman Catholics and Protestant liberals and you know, putting on the crusades and follow-up and all that. And his intentional, uh, the organization's intentional strategic ecumenism was really a source of confusion to many people, as you might imagine. Uh, his approach was doctrinally broad, theologically minimalistic, but in apparent as it was apparent, it seemed to work. Uh, a lot of people were coming, a lot of conversions were professed, and so the apparent success has encouraged many churches to go the same direction. Let's just drop all this doctrine talk. Let's drop all this theological study because theology divides. We need to just bring people together and let them unify. The problem is it was just a unity on the surface and not really at the heart. So many, we talked about uh, some, some of the once solid institutions and organizations of evangelicalism have drifted really from the gospel. And without a spiritual discernment, without theological instruction and doctrinal depth, they really lack discernment, They're thereby lacking the immune system to guard against error. And we saw it didn't take more than a generation or two to see significant fracturing, departure, and all the rest. Okay, so that's just to bring you up to speed. Tonight, we're going to talk about nominalism, we're going to talk about politicism, and we're going to talk about relativism okay we'll see if we get through all this tonight all right so nominalism first christian nominalism um i could really start with any of them but i i think that it's the case that the tendency to like uh, coming out of christian minimalism to try to boil things down to its to its bare essence which really ends up distorting and perverting the truth um had, that, that tendency toward minimalism has a, contributed pretty significantly to Christian liberalism and nominalism and also relativism, but they're all links, so we're going to start here with nominalism. Liberalism, you might think of that as uh, kind of a movement for those who are more regi- religiously interested people, maybe more religiously aggressive. They want uh, spirituality, but they really don't want the old spirituality. They want to kind of forge a new spiritual path for themselves. Nominalism is not as interested in religious observance. In fact, it's you might say nominalism is kind of tailor-made for those who are more passive, more uh, religiously lazy types of people. They're content to name the name of Christ, kind of banking on some former uh, profession or signing of a card or a baptism or something like that. Uh, but really, they have no real interest in the hard work of self-examination, regular self-examination. They don't want the, the discomfort of true repentance. They they find engaging in gospel witness and things like that the something kind of awkward and hard to do. So they just say, "I'm good. I'm not gonna. Do, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna watch football." So um, you may have heard of the rhinos, you know, the Republican in name only. These are the kinos, the Christian in name only, you know. Um, that's what nominalism is it's from the word nominal which is existing in name only just to um, give you a more concrete picture people who are nominal christians they are those who say that they're christians and they'll emphatically affirm that they are saved that they're fine with god they're good with the big man upstairs um, but they don't really practice anything assim- uh, approximating true christianity at all Uh, nothing about God's word Uh, truth or anything like that really moves the needle of their hearts Uh, true north on the compass of their mind and their thinking is their own preferences their own desires what they want to do that day all of that for some of them uh, you might as you might imagine church attendance is pretty spotty if they do attend church uh, at all they're they're sure to be seen on the important Sundays right Christmas and Easter Um, maybe Mother's Day because you got to keep mom happy after all. Um, but for, for other nominal Christians, they're happy to attend church. They just don't let it trouble them too much. They, they'll, they'll come, they'll warm a pew, they'll smile, shake hands, they've got a pleasant story or a joke to share, but they're otherwise unengaged in the real life and the heart of the church. They kind of keep a safe distance uh, from all of that that might uh, trouble them or pressure them or... Uh, you know, taking up any responsibility or anything. So, by outward observation, uh, a nominal Christian appears apathetic to spiritual things. They're bored by Christian conversation. They are uh, clearly irritated by those who may be impolite enough or bold enough to ask more penetrating spiritual questions. And, um, you know, the external conversation uh, what, their, what their conversation, what their lifestyle reveals is really that their heart is proud. They profess to believe God's word, but by their actions they reveal a heart of unbelief. They profess to love Jesus Christ, but they are inwardly rebellious. And they refuse to acknowledge the sovereign authority of Christ and his word. And don't you dare bring anything to their mind. Don't bring anything to their attention because how dare you question my my actual profession of faith. Paul told Titus that people like this, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. In Titus one sixteen, nominal Christians seem like really nice people. But when Paul continues talking to Titus, he continues with the judgment of the Holy Spirit telling us that these are not nice guys, but rather, in the next verse, that they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Okay, that's hard stuff, okay? So I want to ask a couple of questions to kind of pull you back just a little bit. Lest we all become hypercritical about people who seem like they're not as engaged as we would like them to be, um, they're not pulling their own oar or helping us lift burdens of ministry, let's ask just a couple of questions so that we avoid making hasty judgments. I'm going to give you two scenarios and ask you a question. This is your chance to participate. Okay, to speak back. Um, when we see people who are pretty inconsistent in church attendance, uh, relatively unengaged in church body life, other than coming to that conclusion immediately, nominal Christian. Sorry if I pointed at you. I didn't. It wasn't <laughs> intentional. <laughs> um, what could be some other reasons? for their infrequent church attendance? we want to ask that question. Another question. When we see people who attend church, but that's all that they do, they're not really involved or engaged, they don't show any signs of life, uh, they're kind of flat no spiritual pulse it would seem. Again, what might be some reasons, other than nominal Christianity, that explain that lack of engagement? Okay, so those are the two scenarios infrequent attendance or okay attendance but other than that really nothing but sitting in a pew or a chair or whatever else other than nominal christianity what other reasons might explain infrequent attendance or lack of spiritual engagement so shift work uh, a job responsibility or something like that some situation that they're in uh, that you don't really know about okay could be immaturity they haven't grown as much spiritually. They don't know. I mean, this is all new to them. They come to this building and they say, okay, I sit and listen and then I go home and then I kind of do my thing. They kind of work it out, but they really don't know there's more to it uh, in being a member of the body of Christ. Good. Uh, yes. Priorities. Priorities, you said. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to, after all, what they hear on the radio, they're trying to focus on the family. Sometimes family and church don't really mesh. And so, hey, you got to focus on the family and that's Christian. Now now that's a, it, it could be, but it's an issue of spiritual immaturity, not really understanding um, that focusing on the family means focusing on the church. Health of themselves or someone in their family, and uh, it's, it's uh, very interesting to see how many people have to take care of other uh, loved ones who are going through, they may seem of sound mind and body, but they're going to spend a lot of energy in taking care of people that uh, you know, are, are really troubled health-wise. So, yeah, that's a very important thing to see as well. Wayne? Transportation. Okay, transportation means um, and sometimes they just lack the funds. Even I've, I've seen that before where people even lack gas money. When, uh, when I was living in California, um, gas there was even higher, uh, probably higher than most places in the nation. And uh, that was a real stretch for people. Sometimes they could only attend one service, because of the distance, they had to travel into church, and they realized that I, if I'm going to spend this amount of money, I can't do that two, to, two, three times a week. And so they really did make that decision based on uh, finances. Yeah. Okay. Hostility of family, and so sometimes to keep the peace, just saying, okay, I'll just go to maybe a little bit. And trying to, they're trying to balance a couple of different things. That's good. Uh, was there one more? Okay. Good. That's that's really helpful too. That uh, their their early Christian discipleship is with people who aren't really strong, mature Christians, or some of them even sub-Christians. They're not even Christians at all. And they're getting discipled by those people. That's not helpful. Um, I could add to that list uh, some of the things you guys have put there. Uh, Fern, you mentioned disorder priorities. We can also talk about discouragement. Sometimes people are just going through a terrible time, and they're discouraged and just coming to... Uh, the body uh, meeting, the church meeting, is just a reminder of how poorly they're doing spiritually. And uh, it's really tough for them to go through. Sometimes it's unresolved bitterness or unreconciled relationships in the church, which, again, these aren't good excuses or good reasons, but they are reasons. So, so in either of these cases, whether infrequent uh, church attendance or mere church attendance, uh, we want though we want our immediate reaction here to be tempered with gracious judgment, we are right to see the situation in that person's life as less than ideal, right? It's, it, it's less than fully healthy. It's not tending or contributing to growth and maturity in their life. And something may very well be wrong in their life. So when we see people from a bit of a distance in a condition like this, um, Infrequent or mere church attendance. What can we do that's going to promote our coming to a proper judgment about their uh, condition? What do you think? So, so what a great idea! Get to know them. Is it could it be any more simple than that? Does anybody really have anything to elaborate on? Yeah, that's that is true. There are general requests from up front, but sometimes you just need to go to a person and just kind of say, Hey, would you do this? And uh, you'd be surprised to find they just were waiting for you to ask that question. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, get get to know people better. Ask, uh, you know, get together for coffee, have lunch. Uh, Wayne said, you know, adjust to their schedule. You know, if they're on shift work, you find a time in that off time and get together with them. And maybe you're going to co- uncover, uh, well, you'll certainly get to know them better. You'll you'll, you'll learn the, the, the kind of the, the rhythm of their life and what uh, what keeps them from, uh, from what's the best situation is to be involved and engaged. But you also might uncover some old wound uh, that was never healed properly, some broken bone that wasn't well set. Um, we need to get involved in that as well. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, uh, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but then, this be patient with them all. Okay, so how do you know if you're dealing with someone who is idle or faint hearted or weak? You've got to get to know them. You've got to get into their life. You've got to love them. You have to love them and give of yourself sacrificially to get into their life and their world and learn are, is this an, a person who's just idle? Well, if they are, they need admonishment. If they're faint hearted, they need encouragement. If they're weak, they need practical help. Okay, no matter what kind of person they are, be patient with them all. But just know this in love as a Christian, in love, you need to engage. And sometimes love dictates different uh, responses to different people. But in love, engage. Now, if you do try to engage and you happen to be dealing with a nominal Christian, and by that I mean not a true Christian, Keep uh, these two Proverbs in mind. Write down Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. First one says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The second one says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Um, Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. I think I've got that right, okay, thanks. um so in the first instance, those who isolate themselves from others um those are the infrequent church attenders, or sometimes they're the they're the mirror church attenders, but they're kind of very isolated. they really don't want any kind of input or uh they don't really want you to ask them to coffee <laughs> um so they put you off, they rebuff your attempts to draw near. They keep rescheduling. Sometimes they ignore you altogether. And on the off chance that you are able to get a date on the calendar, you try to engage spiritually. You ask spiritually penetrating questions. You ask direct questions about church attendance, about engagement in church. You look long and hard, and you cannot seem to find a spiritual pulse. And in that case, you may be dealing with a nominal Christian. On the other hand, you may find yourself, according to Proverbs 18.2, you may find yourself dealing with a nominal Christian fool, again, who is not a true Christian. This is the person who's been sitting in the pews of good churches all their lives under the hearing of good preaching, but really there are barnacles growing on their legs and their arms because they never use them. They just sit in salt water and little things are growing on their bodies, okay? So that's them. Um, There's no mobility, there's no energy, there's no movement. And these are people who listen, they learn a lot, they become experts in listening, but in actuality they do nothing. And you will usually find this kind of person, um, though displaying maybe a little bit more fight than the guy without any pulse at all. This is the guy who takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. He's effectively just as dead as the other guy. There's no pulse in him either, even though his body still seems to be kicking around a bit. Okay? So, um, what would be your biblical warning to a nominal Christian? What, what would you say if you thought you were dealing with a nominal Christian? And, and let me actually, before you answer that, think about that uh, question. But um, Bill Wilkot's over here. He asks, he's good at asking penetrating questions. Um, what, are, what is a question you typically ask, say a man who's married, what do you ask about how they're doing spiritually very helpful yeah and and bill does when anytime you spend a little bit of time with him he asks those kind of questions and and those are really helpful questions and they they kind of make you think we need to be interested in asking those kind of questions about the people we call brothers and sisters in christ we need to be doing that we need to be loving people in that way by asking penetrating questions provoking questions not not to put people on their on their heels or anything like that but because we really care we want to see where they are how they're doing and if in any of those categories they're not doing well or not not walking according to scripture we want to find out where they are and help them to grow to the next uh next level right so that's what we do so if you do come across a nominal christian someone who hears those kind of questions and takes offense at mr will because he is who's this guy think he is anyway walks in here and starts asking me all this stuff what what about you pal well how are you doing with your wife you tell me you know that kind of thing i've never thought that about bill that's all um but it would be okay if i did thanks thanks bill i appreciate that but what would be your biblical warning to a nominal christian is really not a christian that is true A nominal christian not a christian they are a christian simply in name only Backslidden, backslidden, Christian? Um, you know, I yes, I think that anytime time we sin, we backslide, don't we? Anytime we sin, I'm sliding backward. Um, I'm going back to, you know, feed from the world's trough, so to speak. So there are, are there Christians that do that um, infrequently. Yes, there are. Are there Christians who do that more frequently? Sadly, yes, there are. are there Christians who do that maybe for a period of time which we kind of call them backslidden Christians. Uh, yeah, I think there can be, but I do think that the Holy Spirit within them is jealous for the glory of God and jealous for their soul and jealous to see them glor- bring glory to God and will not let them stay in that, in that uh, condition. So I think people that uh, um, backslide in, you know, as, a, as a habit of life, I have great questions on whether or not they're truly Christians. So I start asking some of those penetrating questions, n- namely having to do with the things that uh, they're backsliding into. And if they're, if they're, um, if they're flippant about it or, or otherwise unconcerned, then I, I really do have questions of whether or not they're a Christian. Um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, there were some of those quote-unquote backslidden Christian, Christians who God just killed. He said, okay, enough, and I'm going to pull you out. But I think, I think for the most part, people who are backslidden Christians true Christians who are backslidden will eventually repent I think they'll eventually repent because God wants them growing good that's great stuff and uh Romans 6 how can we who died to sin still live in it right how can we be comfortable with that Uh, that's a great text too Okay, so you mentioned Romans or uh, Matthew chapter 7, which many will say to me on that day, "Lord, Lord," and then he'll say, "Depart from me, I never knew you." You'll bring him to a warning passage. you'll, you'll look at someone who is content just claiming the grace of God, grace of God, grace of God, but no concern whatsoever for actually following in an obedience, and you'll say, "That is not the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian is second Peter one two make every effort to add to your faith virtue and your virtue knowledge and on the list goes and and to work out your salvation with fear and trembling right so that's great good good text that is a great springboard into a conversation hey i know what you are i just learned about you in church you know and and it is it's actually not a bad way to get into a conversation because you just blame it on your pastor you know my pastor was talking about people like you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know his name, but he's good. Way it <laughs> you just, just, just pretend ignorance of it and say, oh, I know what you are. You know, you notice little kids do that all the time. Like if you introduce them and, and, and <laughs> the kid's looking up at this couple, they're like, you're not married and you're living together, you know? And all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, yeah. that's really good. So Devin goes a little kid route and he <laughs> pretends innocence and asks really hard penetrating questions. Okay, so watch yourself around Devin. He's going to call you out. That is a wise word. And, and it's, there's don't. Overlook the wisdom in the simplicity of what he said. When you talk to somebody like that, you encourage them to get in back into Bible reading and prayer as a regular habit of life. If they take that up, their life is going to change. You don't need to do anything. It's God's Word has power. And God's Word is going to change their life. If they resist, if you check with them next week or the following week and they're not doing any of what you asked them to do, just simply Bible reading and prayer give them a schedule, give them something to read. And if they just say, eh, I didn't do it because I got busy. I didn't do it because this, uh, you know, whatever, washing the dog. Then you're finding that you're probably dealing with a nominal Christian, someone who's really not a Christian. Okay, uh well, I got to keep moving. Let's go, Barrett, make just quick comments. And if we have to, I'll just cut off this side. So, So is starting to question whether or not you really had a conviction about these things, uh, which which is really another way of saying, do you really believe? Do you really really believe this or not? That's really good. You will do what you believe. You will act according to your belief. I had a seminary professor who was known um, not just in my time, but for decades before he taught a lot of students. He used to pray for us by name. And uh, you could mention something to him kind of in an off conversation, thinking it was very casual. And uh, he'd, he'd actually write that down in a prayer journal, uh, the date. Um, he'd then follow up with you for an answer. You could see him two, three years later at a conference or something, and he'd say, hey, how's it going, Travis, with your wife, that issue you brought up that you know, you're praying on how to be more obedient to the Lord. And, you're, and I'm like, and how, do you, how do you remember that? He said, because I want to that's convicting he wants to pray he wants to pray for you he wants to to take his prayer life seriously and because he wants to do it he does it and he does he wants to do it because he believes it to be true he believes god works through prayer pretty convicting joe you had something to say okay examine yourself yeah okay good good okay that's a good one to stop with we'll keep moving on but there are so many uh so many of these passages on that expose someone who's nominally Christian um that reveals that they're just a Christian name only they really don't know the Lord and so get to know them ask penetrating questions don't be afraid of that um blame it on your pastor that's fine if you want to going to throw me under the bus that's great that's what I'm here for um but uh No, I I don't mean that in like uh, (laughs) a sympathy-generating way. I really mean, you know, my pastor was like he said, my pastor is teaching this, and I just learned this. So So you go through a warning passage from Christ that says, um, um, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. His house, his spiritual life is basically destroyed. There's a great fall, right? Cataclysmic. So you, you go through Matthew 7, and, and I do recommend this is a great text. Matthew seven fifteen, all the way to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 27. So you go through that, and it doesn't seem to make a dent. I'm good with God. Um, you you can continue to try and continue to appeal to them to say, listen, I see clear-cut sin. You are living with your girlfriend. This is not Christian marriage. This is sin before God. You say you're good with God, and yet your Lord commands you to walk in purity and holiness, and not like the Gentiles walk in lust and lack of self-control. And if they say, "Hey, I'm good with God," that's my. We'll get to a little bit more of that in the in the in the last one, the Christian relativism, but. But when you start to press them on those things and they just, they just, they just uh, shrug and walk away, sometimes you need to uh, continue to appeal to them. Sometimes you need to shake the dust off your feet. Uh, sometimes you need to realize you're casting your, furl- your pearls before swine and uh, not continue to press, but just leave them with warning. You know, Leave them with warning of coming judgment. Um, but I think what you do not want to do which is what our tendency to, is to do in very polite, uh, this polite region we live in, what our tendency is to do is to just continue affirming them as a buddy, you know, and just hanging out and never bringing up again. And that we can't do. That's not faithful. We have to confront. Yeah, people you're going to have Thanksgiving with every year and they're coming into your um, coming into your home or you're going to their home. Um, you know, I, again, I think that that's where because we're we're connected by blood by family ties we we're not really going to be shaking the dust of off of our feet and never showing up to thanksgiving again but i think we're also it's not going to be you know before you sit down and have prayer wait a minute i don't pray with hypocrites you know you don't do you don't have to do that before every meal but i think but i think you do want to just in a in a in a way in a private way just to pull them aside and say hey listen you just need to know i have an abiding concern And I get together with you, we're family, I love you, but my heart is broken because you're walking in sin and you're still professing Christ. Now, if that family member is in the same church as you are, we have a recourse for that, right? Matthew 18, we walk through the steps of church discipline, but oftentimes with family, right? They're in other churches, other parts of the country, and you just can't vouch for what's going on in their church, you know? So that's a very brief non-detailed uh answer to your question there are a myriad of different directions that can go based on the situation so it just calls for wisdom and uh patience but i think sincerity i think sin- christian sincerity calls for us to be really honest with people We're, you know it, and it's really not us that's starting the conflict they start the conflict when they pursue transgression and sin they their rebellion against god that is conflict and by you being God's representative, they're bringing conflict to your doorstep as they come into your house or bringing, or you're entering into conflict because of what they're doing, not because of what you're doing. You remember what, uh, what was it, Ahab said to um, Elijah, yeah, you troubler of Israel. He said, oh, I'm not troubling Israel. You're troubling Israel. He just turned it right around on him. And I think, I think we need to be, you know, in a gracious way saying, uh, saying similar things. And, uh, you know, use that language. I have an abiding concern and, and my heart's heavy for your sin. Those kind of things are, are using that are very honest language with them, okay? It's hard to do, isn't it? So, that's just a quick uh, overview of Christian nominalism. And we can go to a form here of nominalism uh that can sometimes be found in those who just love to mix uh Christianity with politics. Uh, I call this... Christian politicism. We could also call this Christian uh, patriotism or Christian nationalism. Um, People who slide into this kind of error, they really are, or or manifest this kind of error. I could say are really into political punditry. You know, they're they're listening to radio talk shows (laughs) all the time, or or even worse, they're on ham radio listening to some really crazy stuff, right? But um, but they're consuming a steady diet of of talk shows, of chat rooms, of online media. They're just consuming the whole thing. And they see Christianity as really a servant of political or national interests rather than a worldview that transcends the politics of any particular nation on earth at any time and calls all people to repent and become citizens of the kingdom of God. So that's the error. You see this whenever our country ramps up for major elections. Uh, it seems to start in that presidential primary season. All the ads come out, and we're watching all the debates and everything, and really reveals a difference uh, during that time in the church between those who are more interested in this world and in its politics than they are about Christ and his salvation. And um, and I wanna, I'm going to say this a couple of times. I want to be careful and say that you can be a Christian and be interested in politics. Okay, obviously. Uh, politics is where our worldview comes out in the way we vote, the way we think, the way we interact, and uh, you know, who, we, uh, who we're interested in, in different candidates and different positions and laws and all that. And in this country, we are afforded the right of voting and the right of being involved in the political process. If we were in a totalitarian dictatorship, we wouldn't have that right. So we wouldn't be having this kind of a discussion; it'd be a different kind of discussion. But I just want to say that just because you're interested in politics doesn't make you not a Christian. Okay, (laughs) all right. But uh, but an over interest in politics uh, to the exclusion of what are transcendent realities of the gospel—that's what I'm concerned about. Those are the people that um, we we are needing to sometimes evangelize. So apart from the distraction and the irretrievable loss of energy and resources that are wasted in this world's politics by Christians. I think the greater detriment uh, in this Christian politicism is this detriment to the gospel. Because the gospel is, it's changed, it's distorted, and it's, it's cast in terms of national interests Or the interests of a political party platform or political causes. And whenever you blend the gospel in or cast it in light of that, you have distorted the gospel. You have exchanged the gospel for politics. So that's really the issue here. It's not that it's wrong to be interested in politics or to vote or be politically involved as a Christian or to run for political office as a Christian. That's not the problem. At this time in our country, we have every right to do so, and so do that. Some Christians are especially gifted in the political arena, and uh, we'd rather have true Christians in office than not, true Christians making laws and deciding, you know, judicial cases and everything than not. That's good. But the problem is with those who politicize Christianity. They make Christianity a servant of political or national views as a matter of patriotism. We have... um, Seen throughout history that blending of the state and church interests, and that blending really does blind many people into thinking that they are Christian because they are citizens of such and such a nation or because they are members of such and such a party. Um, they baptize political concerns with Christian language and divine approval. And that's not just dangerous for society, as we've seen, history is replete with examples of that, Uh, but it's really, the the greater concern is it's damning for the soul. People will go to hell thinking that they are great, red-blooded voting Republicans. Um, And that's what I'm concerned about. During the um, 1970s and the 80s, the moral majority, it was led by Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, people like that, that called for political activism. And I really do believe that the sum total of that movement really did distract Christians from the true mission of the church, and it really did squander an immense amount of time and money and energy on political causes and baptize the whole thing as part of the Christian mission. I think that was wrong-headed, and I think as we look back, we can see a lot of uh, a lot that was misguided there. And it's not just that I'm looking at the people who were leaders in that movement and, and condemning them as non-Christians. Um, I'm not making any judgments about their spiritual condition. But what I do see is that because of all that effort and interest and, and, and attention focused on the politics of this world, many became confused about Christianity itself and the message of the gospel. They associated the Christian message with a political party. And then the Set while the 70s and the 80s version of Christian Christian politicism, they were decidedly conservative, you know, the Christian right and all that. Um, But whether it was the result of public scandals or the evidence of of hypocrisy in the Christian right, um, the version of Christian politicism that exists today seems to have turned in a decidedly liberal direction. It's like they are reacting against all of that in those decades and turning instead to something that's decidedly liberal. As I see it, there are basically two errors in Christian politicism. Uh, there may be many more, but at least these two. On the one hand, I think they pay too much regard for this world and its politics. On the other hand, people can tend to, who are involved in Christian politicism, they can tend to show an utter disregard for this world and its politics, and so much so that they become angry and disrespectful and act in very unchristian ways. So today, those who are professing Christ and who are decided or uh, heavily engaged in uh, political action, as I said, they're moving in, in much more of a liberal direction these days. So you might think of the gay-affirming Christians or the social justice warriors uh, there are now churches and movements who want us all to recognize our sins of microaggression against marginalized groups, and it's hard to keep up with it all because of the proliferation of so many marginalized groups. Um, it's really hard to figure out where I've committed all these sins against them. And you ask, what are microaggressions? Um, microaggressions. You would ask that because you're blinded to your microaggressions. Um, But Merriam-Webster dictionary, microaggression is a comment or an action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude toward a member of a marginalized group, end quote. Okay, so I need to repent of something that I, a comment I've made or an action that is subtle and it's often unconscious, which means I'm not conscious of it. Um, And it's not intentional, this attitude of a prejudice against a marginalized group. As I said, there are so many marginalized groups, you cannot swing a dead cat and not hit one of them, okay? You are going to offend somebody, and we are dealing with a whole culture of people who don't want to be offended by anything. So watch out about your microaggressions, folks. I, I do think that that microaggression thing and trying to run around making reparations for every sin that's been committed by our forefathers and all that kind of stuff—that's that really is a, <coughs> a bent uh, and a, and a uh, you know the, the one of those talking points of liberal uh, Christianity. And we've already got a, gotten a start on dealing with that form of error. But I, I believe in more conservative circles that that's not our that's not our our problem or our issue. I think I think in more conservative circles, people are burned out on political action. And the pendulum swings not toward greater like liberalized involvement, but swings to an opposite error. Um, they pay too much regard for this world and its politics. A- and in, a cons- in conservative circles, I think it's manifest, this Christian politicism is manifest in showing hatred and anger and dishonor, frankly. Total dishonor. Both... Um, going in a liberalizing political direction and becoming angry um, conservatives, I think both of those are distortions and departures by paying too much attention to this world and its politics from the purity and simplicity of a gospel that really transcends this world and its politics. I think we need to be on guard about our language and our hearts in our circles, in our church. I remember back in 2010, uh, it was the 4th of July, and on that year in 2010, that fell on a Sunday, and I preached a message to a group of people, um, many of whom were more than 60 years old. And so that means that there were a number of World War II vets still there, living in attendance, and many Korean War and Vietnam vets as well. And a number of them were absolutely dismayed by what they were seeing in In our president at the time, Barack Obama, and his administration, they were heartbroken about what was happening to the country that they fought for, Uh, they lost friends for, a country that many of them built with their own uh, sweat and blood. But dismay I understand and I sympathize with, especially in the military side of it, but their dismay turned to anger and unresolved anger and outright hatred. Um, some of these people were passing around political cartoons uh, which were not only disparaging, but they were utterly out of bounds and entirely unchristian. And I think it was sinful. When confronted about that, some people came to realize that they had turned their mission field, which is Barack Obama, his administration, anybody who voted for him and all that kind of stuff, they had turned that mission field into their enemy. And some of those people repented of that attitude and that anger they struggled which was good to struggle and fight against that but they had to repent that was the christian response others though dug in their heels they refused to honor they refused to see these people in politics as sinners in need of salvation and these are the people that i became concerned about because they fell prey to christian politicism is probably in their hearts all along and through confrontation and through trying to work some of them just left they didn't want to tolerate that anymore and so that sunday i preached a sermon um i'd come across an interview that glenn beck conducted with jerry falwell jr any of you remember glenn beck you guys know anybody know what religion he practices he's a mormon Glenn Beck conducted an interview with Jerry Falwell Jr. He's the chancellor Jerry Falwell's of Liberty University in Virginia, it's the largest Christian university in the nation. And during the interview, they established common ground, and Jerry Falwell Jr. told Mr. Beck, quote, "If we don't hang together, we'll hang separately." I mean, that's what my father believed when he formed the moral majority was an organization uh, uh, when he formed the Mormon majority, it was an organization of Mormons, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, people of no faith, and then this, there are bigger issues now. We can argue about theology later after we save the country. End quote. And I just had to stop and ask, bigger issues than theology? Not long before that interview, Liberty University's Board of Trustees, it's a Christian college, Christian university, They had just conferred an honorary doctorate upon Glenn Beck, a Mormon. So I guess we're to assume that the issues that divide Mormons and Christians really aren't that significant in comparison to the political issues that we're facing. We need to save the country first, and then we'll get to theology afterwards. So Glenn Beck and Jerry Falwell Jr., they were united in concern about the dangers posed by the president and the Oval Office, the political and party in power at the time and they weren't wrong to be concerned um to have a have a christian judgment about those things they weren't wrong about that um weren't wrong to call people to vote and all the rest but they lacked historical and especially biblical perspective if they think the democratic party is bad and we do realize the democratic party as a platform is decidedly anti-christian i mean there is so much there that you can't vote for in good conscience, but they should stop to consider the rulers throughout church history to whom Christians are to render submission and obedience and especially honor. We must honor. I'd like, um, let's say, just divide right here where David is and you go with this side and all you guys look up Romans thirteen one to 7 and we're going to have a reader um, read out on this side over here, let's have you all look up First Peter two thirteen to seventeen. 1 Peter two thirteen to seventeen. On this side, Romans thirteen one to seven. These are two very important texts that test the heart of those who claim to be Christians, but whose Christianity is not a true relationship with Christ, in submission to Christ and all His commands but is rather more of an outworking of their more fundamental political interests. So someone start over here. Let me get a reader. Maybe, Gary, you've got a loud voice uh, that can project. Romans 13, 1 to (laughs) 7. Thank you, Gary. Very, very helpful. Uh, Very powerful uh, text and very confrontive of our attitudes toward our government, especially when God tells us in his word, that they are servants of God, they are ministers of God. Interesting, isn't it? Um, let's go to this side of the room and get somebody to read with a loud voice. You want to read it, Joe? First uh, Peter two thirteen to seventeen. Thank you, Joe. Very, very another very powerful text there. And honor, 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 and it's using the word emperor. Romans was written around A.D. 57 to 58. 1 Peter written a little later around A.D. 64, 65. Anybody know who reigned as emperor during those years? Nero. He was there on the throne of Rome 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. And he was, as you know, a notoriously wicked man. If you haven't read anything about Emperor Nero... You might want to get, um, I'd recommend, a little book by Suetonius. It's thin, and it's interesting reading. It's called The Twelve Caesars. Um, Write that down, Suetonius. Um, Ancient historian. But a couple passages from Suetonius are enough to introduce you to the kind of man that Nero was. Um, This is a little um, difficult to hear, but here's a quote from Suetonius. Nero castrated a boy named Sporus, trying to make a woman of him. He married him with all the usual ceremonies, including a dowry, a a bridal veil, took him to his house, attended by a great throng, and treated him as his wife. This sporus decked out with the finery of the empress and riding in a litter, he took with him through the streets and markets of Greece and Rome, fondly kissing him from time to time. None of our presidents have done exactly that yet, right? Nero... Not only married this guy, he married another man in the same way he married Sporus. He committed all manner of immorality, deviancies, and things that I won't go even any further in public. But he was also known to manifest all this really bad behavior at banquets, at parties that were as expensive as they were debauched. He was not good with money, let's say. Um, And it's probably because it wasn't his money. In, there's another account from Suetonius, and we read this. Nero spent 8,000 gold pieces a day on King Tiridates, and made him a parting gift of more than a million. He gave entertainers and gladiators properties and residences equal to those of men who had, se- who had celebrated triumphs. He enriched others with estates in the country and in the city and later had them buried with mo- almost regal splendor. Nero never wore the same garment twice. He would stake 4,000 gold pieces on the throw of a dice. He fished with a golden net strung with cords woven of purple and scarlet threads. Seldom traveled with a train of less than 1,000 carriages. His mules shod with silver and their drivers clad in wool of uh, canusium, attended by a train of Mauritanian horsemen and couriers with bracelets and medallions, and on and on it goes. Guess where the money came from? Taxes. And when the tax burden came, became too great on the people, when it stressed and strained the people to the point that it risked revolt, Nero simply commandeered the land of some wealthy person. He liquidated it and used it for the purposes of the state. That kind of ruler puts our politicians into a bit of perspective, doesn't it? Okay? Okay. We may not be too far off, uh, it's granted, but we still have a ways to go before we're under any stress of obeying Paul's command in Romans 13 or First Peter 2, uh, Peter and First Peter 2. A couple of books you might want to get, they're not, um, they're not currently uh, in print, but you can find them on Amazon. John MacArthur wrote one called Why Government Can't Save You, An Alternative to Political Activism. The other is, can God bless America, which he wrote right after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And um, both of those will help set your perspective biblically on an approach to politics. Again, I want to be clear, not everyone who struggles with or makes the mistake of mixing Christianity with political uh, issues, they are not thereby not a Christian. So I just, I'm not sure if that's too many negatives, and I've just contradicted myself. But um, <laughs> what I'm saying is just because you have an interest in politics doesn't make you not a Christian. Um, those who see Christianity, though, in strictly political terms and refuse, as 1 Timothy 2 commands us to do, uh, to pray for... Let me just go to that passage. In fact, 1 Timothy 2, take a look at it there. It says... First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions uh, and thanksgivings be made for all people, and that's talking about all kinds of people, as he's about to say, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice how he says that we're to take our political concerns. And what do we do as Christians who are rightly concerned and dismayed about the things we see going on around us? Pray. And prayer takes us directly before the throne of the God who has the power to do anything about any of this. And as we heard from 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, He actually has the will to do something about it and in his good time is going to take care of all this and put the world to rights. So we're appealing to the one who has the power, who has the will, who has the sovereignty, who has authority. We need to pray. And when we pray, we settle our minds and our hearts before God. And we're acting in a godly and a dignified way. Rather than railing against people for their political views and treating the mission field like the enemy. We're actually taking the concerns to God and we're concerned for their salvation first and foremost right so that needs to be our concern and when we run into those people who think of Christianity in strictly political terms and they refuse to do this they refuse to obey this they refuse to love their leaders and honor their leaders and pray for them and evangelize people who hold opposite and very wrong-headed political views i am concerned for those people that they may not understand the message of the gospel because the gospel transcends the politics of this world and it calls us into the kingdom of god which is much higher than all the nations of this world right So many may fail to apprehend the true nature of the political problems, that all those political problems and issues have to do with a fallen world and the fallen condition of mankind, the theological problem of sin and the true nature of the battle. They fail to realize that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, politically or otherwise. We wrestle instead against spiritual rulers and authorities and cosmic powers who rule over this present darkness, and failure is not the wrong leader in a different, some office in the state or the nation. Failure, according to Ephesians 6, losing the wrestling match is sinning. We need to be more concerned about our personal sin in wrestling with the powers and the authorities and all that than we are with what's being legislated to us in our land. I mean, I'm not saying don't take concern for those things, okay? I want to Always caution uh, because I'm kind of walk, walking through a tightrope here, but the real struggle for the true Christian. It's not it's not for us to try to legislate for unregenerate people to do some kind of external morality, even though we'd love to see more righteous laws, okay? The real struggle for every true Christian is to mortify for ourselves as regenerate people our inward immorality. Word legislation the land doesn't touch but god's law does The real struggle is for us to mortify our sin and then to strengthen our commitment to our holiness before our god so when you find somebody who is uninterested in all of that in their own personal sin in righteousness and holiness for themselves and they're always looking at externally and outward that's where the concern is when you when you find people who are unmoved by your appeals to Consider the true nature of Christianity when you find those people who are unconcerned about their sin of anger and hatred and bitterness and disrespect and dishonor. That's the kind of person we may be dealing with, a sub-Christian there, okay? I I realize that that's very simplistic in, in an overview, but I just want to ask, are there any questions for clarification on that, lest we don't draw clear enough lines? So, are you talking about specifically having political conversations with professing Christians, and you bring up something that contradicts their their, you know, angst or disrespect or dishonor or something like that? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. So what what I tend to do sometimes making a statement like that, just just stating it as a in in, in the indicative, um, sometimes that that just b- and I've done this plenty of times myself, it just is a conversation killer. I mean, people are like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. I'm uncomfortable. Let me bring up football. You know, so they go in another direction. Um, so what I've, what I've tried to learn to do is instead to turn that into an interrogative question. Like saying, you know, interrogative question, that's so the same thing, right? It's interrogative. Uh, I turn it into a question. And I say, um, hey, uh, so why do you think people think that way? You know, so I just try to tease it out of them. And if they're professing Christians, I want to draw them to truth that they say they know. Okay? So that's, that's how I try to do that. And, then, and obviously, we could go down the road quite a bit. But I try to ask questions and use that Socratic method. to Sometimes a reductio ad absurdum argument, you know, and taking their argument down to its logical absurdity uh, is helpful too yeah that's that's a great point i i think you're right and i think i did see that um in that group i was talking to you about the 16 over group there's a there's a great fear there's a fear that everything that they've built is going to be torn down there's a fear that their children and their grandchildren their great-grandchildren are going to grow up in a land that they have this this in place and and all the rest and so yeah i do think that there can be a fear and for true christians though when you confront that fear and you remind them that God is absolutely sovereign, He's decreed from the the end from the beginning and everything in between, and He's in control and nothing is out of out of step with His eternal plan, that tends to put the troubled heart to rest. Okay, so that's the the encourage. That's the encourage the faint-hearted. It's first first Thessalonians five fourteen. You're finding that to be a faint-hearted, fearful person. And then you encourage them. You strengthen them with truth. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. They follow They follow me. So when you give them the, sh- the shepherd's voice, the true sheep is going to follow. And they're going to listen. And that's going to soothe their heart. And you may have to do that over and over. Be patient with all, right? But it's the person who is not comforted by that and is still trapped in fear and out of fear reacts in hostility and fear aggression and all that that's where you're seeing a person who may be truly enslaved still so where you need to bring them back to the gospel and ask those questions but thank you for bringing that up that's that's a very important comment somebody else yes bill exactly right and and that tribalism is getting worse and worse and worse it's proliferating and we're just fracturing into um, a multitude of tribes and I think that that's what I was uh, pointing to or alluding to when I'm speaking of the transcendent nature of the gospel. And so to, to bring that into, like you did, into concrete terms, identity with Christ is more important than identity with any other thing in my background, any other thing in my current life, identity with Christ. Or um, if we talk about transcending the politics of this world to the really the politics of Christ in the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God that is putting it into concrete terms that we are citizens of a greater kingdom, okay? So that's the kingdom I identify with. That's the laws that I adhere to. And if I walk in step with those laws, I'm pretty much walking in step with the laws of the land as well. One of the laws of my king, submit to the governing authorities. Show honor, show respect. But yeah, it does come back to identity. It comes back to citizenship and all the rest. Yeah, thank you. It's good, very good.